Well, good morning, everyone. We are continuing our journey through the book of Romans. Now in Romans chapter 11. So please turn in your Bibles. Romans chapter 11. Yeah, it's so great to be in this new space. You guys were here last week. You got to be here, most of you anyway. This is my first time here, so I'm just kind of soaking it in. <laughs> Thank you for everyone who worked so hard to... Uh, Help us get into this this place and so many people work hard i'm very thankful so thank you for everyone who who helped with this and especially jim you know you led the whole thing so i just want to thank you thank you for that and everybody worked so hard so thank you we'll continue in the book of romans today chapter 11 and what's happening here in chapter 11 is paul is finishing what he started in in chapter 9 we're going to continue to see and understand more and more of God's plan of salvation for Israel and for the world as we work our way through Romans. Now, in chapters 9 through 11, we see what's going on in the plan of God for the salvation of Israel and the world. Now, it may seem like this is all about Israel, but it has great application to our lives today. Some, some tend to say, oh, Romans 9 through 11, that's just about Israel. Not too interested in Israel personally. I'll just kind of check out during those, and then we'll pick up in chapter 12 with the brotherly love stuff. And, and that, that's great, right? Uh, but this has great bearing on our lives today, and I want us to see that. I want to work through that together so we can see how you know, this applies to Israel, but also applies to us today. It helps us get answers to some really difficult questions. Like what I just was saying, you know, why, why has Israel rejected Jesus? You know, I often wonder that. They had all the scriptures. They had all the prophets. They had everything, all the signs pointing to Jesus. Even, you know, the, the feasts. If you look hard at the feasts, they all point to what Messiah would do. And Jesus did it all. Yet they missed it. So why, why does Israel reject Jesus? And, and what's the point of the law anyway? Like, why do we need this Old Testament anymore? Anyway, we got the New Testament. You know, we'll just read that. Right? Wrong. We need it all. Right? We need it all. And these, these, these chapters are helping us understand the point of the law and the importance of the law. And some of us, like I said earlier, you know, what's the big deal about Israel anyway? Why should I even care? Well, why does it matter? Why should I even care if Israel is saved? These important questions are, are answered here in Romans 9 through 11. And so I want to give us a summary of, you know, what these chapters are about and, you know, where the, the book of Romans has been taking us. You know, Romans is teaching us that God has a plan of salvation for all mankind, for Israel and the nations. God wants us all, Jewish or otherwise, to understand that we are saved by his mercy and grace through faith in Jesus. Jewish people are not automatically saved simply because they're law-keeping Jewish people. That's not how it works. And us non-Jews, you'll see us talked about here as the Gentiles, that's all of us non-Jewish people, we can't save ourselves by simply being good people. That's not how it works. You know, ask anyone today, you know, why should God let you into heaven, into his heaven? And most of them are going to give you a response like, well, hey, I'm a pretty good person. Really? So we think that. 
You know, even us believers today who know the truth of the gospel, we can fall into that trap too. We can have pride start to well up in our own hearts and say, hey, you know, I might be thinking I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, that's dangerous territory right there. You don't want to go there. And so these chapters are helping us see it's not, we're not saved because we're pretty good people on our own. And when we understand all of this properly, we understand that there's no room for boasting and pride. You're going to see that as a theme here, especially through the end of this book. Be careful not to boast. Be careful not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Right? Don't be prideful. Prideful is, pride is deadly. So stay away from that. Whether you're a Jew counting on your law-keeping, and hey, I'm, I'm a law-keeping Jew, that's why I'm going to be saved. Or whether you're one of a, the non-Jews, those Gentiles, so, well, I'm a good person, that's why I'm going to be saved. Both answers completely incorrect. Both answers deadly. So be careful of that. Stay away from pride. If we understand these truths and take them to heart, we, we won't think and act pridefully then toward each other. And that's really where he's steering with these chapters. Because there's, there's a problem, and it's almost in every one of Paul's letters, there's a problem with unity in the body of Christ. There's a problem with believers in the church fighting with each other, thinking one's better than the other. You know, oh, well, I keep the feasts, and I keep the Sabbaths, and I, I eat only vegetables, or I eat only you know, uh, me, you're like, you're a weak because you, uh, you're just the vegetable guy and I'm beef brother over here. You know, there's beef brother and salad sister fighting it out, you know, all this stuff. And it's over all these tiny little things. So he's like, hey, stop fighting over all this stuff, guys. Live together in, in, in unity and harmony and brotherly love. You know, that's where you're going to see this going. Read ahead. Read ahead, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, you're going to see, wow, that's really what he's getting. There's a unity problem in the church. And every one of Paul's letters practically deals with these, this, the same topic. And who are we to think that we're any better today? We're not. And we got to be careful of these things, too. we got to be aware of these things. And really, you know, fight for unity within the church. Like, I'm going to put my selfish interest aside, and I'm going to bear with, with someone else's weakness on this matter. That's where he's getting to. So he's driving us toward humility, love, and service, so that we'll have unity and harmony with each other in the church and in this world. We'll be more patient with each other and build each other up in the church, rather than criticizing and judging each other over our differences. And when we do that, what happens, right? The world will know us what? By our love for one another. That's how the world knows that we love Jesus, by our love for each other. Our love for each other and our unity with each other points the world to a beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it brings glory to God the Father. Now, here at the end of chapter 10 in Romans, it, it doesn't look very good for Israel after what Paul just said at the end of chapter 10. So if you back up a little bit, remember the message from last week. Paul's saying this, hey, Israel heard the word of truth and rejected it. 
Israel understood even. They understood it even. Sometimes you hear something you don't really understand. It happens a lot. But not only did they hear it, they understood it and they still rejected it. They stumbled over it. It's like they're bebopping along, you know, the Pharisees keeping the law, doing all this stuff. Everything's good. Look what a great person. Boom! Just stumble and They stumble over it. What was that? Jesus. What? He's the rock of offense, the stumbling stone. What are you telling me about Jesus? I got all this, right? So they heard it. They understood it. They're like, Paul, get out of here. Completely rejected. Stumbled over it. Completely stumbled over it. So it looks pretty bad for Israel at the end of chapter 10. And then we know also that Gentiles, that's us non-Jewish people, who weren't even seeking after God, we've been shown mercy and by faith have entered into the covenant promises of God. Now, we, on the other hand, we're just kind of bebopping along, living our lives. Someone comes along, tells us about Jesus. What, Jesus? Well, that sounds amazing. I can be saved by trusting in Jesus. I confess my sins, confess my, with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I can be saved from my sins? Really? I want to do that. And I believe. Similar experience for some of you. Do you believe? Just going through life, not even looking for God necessarily. And suddenly, he's a beautiful treasure to us. So what's up with that? Whereas Israel, on the other hand, has been a disobedient, contrary people, even though God has been faithful and helped them all along the way. That's what we see at the end of chapter 10. And so it really begs the question, has God rejected his people? And now Paul answers that question very clearly and decisively based on the Old Testament scriptures. Look at chapter 11, starting verse 1. We're going to go through verses 1 through 10 today. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So Paul anticipates the question. And he writes, he just, he's going to put it right out there. He's great at taking all the elephants in the room, putting them right in the middle of the table and dealing with them. Has God rejected his people? Because it would seem that way. Paul, are you just saying God rejected Israel? By no means. Certainly not. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left. And now they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So he starts by asking the obvious question, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected these disobedient, contrary, hard-hearted people? An emphatic no, certainly not, by no means. And he makes a point here. Paul is writing this, and he is also an Israelite. And he establishes his credibility as an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's very, he's qualifying this. <clears throat> so if God has rejected Israel, then logically Paul would have been rejected too. But he wasn't. He was graciously saved. And Romans 9 through 11 is working to show us that ethnic Jews come to salvation by the same route as Paul himself through faith in Messiah Jesus. God has not rejected his people, but he also hasn't given them a different way to be saved. There's no two parallel tracks of salvation, one for Jewish people and one for the Gentiles. That's not how it is. One way to be saved. All are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As a whole, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as Messiah and therefore turned away from God as a whole, like generally speaking. But God is still showing grace towards specific Jewish people and saving them by his gracious choice. See that in verse five, they are chosen by grace. Now, Paul uses this story of Elijah to teach us this truth. So I want us to go back to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, way back in the Old Testament. And I have to use these times to like take us back to the Old Testament, teach some out of the Old Testament. I want us to see this story of Elijah that Paul is using so we'll understand it more richly. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. <clears throat> On page uh, 658. <laughs> so he says there in Romans 11, while you're turning back, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Did you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? God, they have killed our prophets. I'm the only one left, God, and now they want to kill me. God tells him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has his people. Now, I'm going to tell you kind of the setup for this story in 1 Kings. There's this evil king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel. And these are really bad folks. I mean, they're, they're truly evil. They killed all the prophets of the Lord. Probably why you don't see many women named Jezebel these days. I mean, this, this one was bad. 
He is evil. They killed all the prophets of the Lord. Only a hundred survived because they were hidden in a cave. They broke them into fifties and they hid them in the caves to try to save them. Elijah was a prophet of God in those days. And because of all this great evil and killing of his companions, he thought he was the only prophet left. And so he's so bold that he goes and confronts Ahab for his great sin against God. And he challenges all the, the prophets of the foreign gods at Mount Carmel. I call this the smackdown at Ma Mount Carmel. It's a great story. I, I love it. So like, I, we just got to go through this. This is just too good. And so it picks up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. And so we're going to see, you know, here's the story of Elijah and why Paul's using this uh, in his teaching today. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So he's drawn all Israel together. Here's the showdown. He's like, gather all Israel together, all the prophets of Baal, and, and bring them all to this one place. Now, there's 450 prophets of Baal. <clears throat> and he gets everybody together. And he gets right in their face. He holds nothing back. How long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? Are you going to serve the Baals or are you going to serve God? Right, man, I see a lot of this today in our culture. You know, we're very you know, worldly over here. I'm going to serve the world. But then on Sunday, you know, I'm going to come and pray and praise God. You know, we're going to, we're going to pray on Sunday and then swear on Monday. You know, I see a lot of this in the world today. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Make your choice now. He gets right in their face. And what's the response of the people there? The people didn't answer him a word. So they know, man, he's got us. We're busted. He's got us. Then Elijah said to the people, verse 22, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he's like one against 450. Odds don't look pretty good here. They don't look very good for Elijah. And then he gives this huge challenge. This is great. Let two bulls be given to us. So we're basically going to have a test here. Who's the real God? Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But don't put any fire to it. I'll prepare the other bowl. I'm going to lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, he says, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So there's, there's the text right there. <clears throat> and all the people said, all right, yeah, woohoo, let's go. It's well spoken. This is going to be awesome. They didn't have Instagram and Snapchat and you know, stuff to watch. This is probably, wow, this is great. This is exciting. You know, we got some real entertainment going on here. We're going to see which God is real. It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, verse 25, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to. So they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal. From morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice and no one answered. Of course, Baal's not real. 
right? He's not real. They may have made statues. They're just wood. They might have eyes, but they don't see. They might have ears, but they don't hear. They're just wood. Baal's not real. No voice. And they do this from morning until noon. So, you know, it's probably hours upon hours of crying out to Baal. No answer. No voice. So they have their turn. Nothing happens. Well, of course nothing's going to happen. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them. This is great. Saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. So maybe hey, he doesn't hear you. Speak a little bit louder. Yell louder. Either he is musing, or maybe he's relieving himself. Oh, man, he's like, he's really getting there. Now. He's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's busy going to the bathroom. He's not paying attention. Cry louder. Get his attention. Or maybe he's on a journey. He's on a trip. When on vacation, your God's on a vacation, guys. Sorry, maybe he's just not around. Or perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. <laughs> and then they cry even louder. They start cutting themselves after their custom with swords and lances. This is kind of gross. And the blood gushed out on them. So this is getting nasty now. And still nothing's happening. <clears throat> As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was still no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Well, you had your turn, guys. Nothing's happening. Right? Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Say, come on in. Get closer. Listen up. Gather in. All the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down because Ahab and Jezebel had torn down all the altars of the Lord and killed all the prophets. So, so Elijah fixes the altar. <clears throat> He takes 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name, verse 32. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. So he makes this big trench all around the altar. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he says, do it a second time. They did it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. Now, why is he putting water on the sacrifice? Because he wants to show everyone what about to, what's about to happen here is no accident. What you're about to see, ladies and gentlemen, is not some magician's trick, right? Because bulls in and of themselves have their pretty much water, right? So they don't just spontaneously burn. Uh, and so he's made this trench around. He's put the wood up there. and He's like, drench it three times with lots of water. <clears throat> so no one can say, oh, that was just some trick. When, when fire is going to come down and consume all this, basically, is what's about to happen. So there's going to be no shadow of a doubt that this was real. So they did it a third time. And water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So there's water everywhere. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Oh God, <clears throat> oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, 
answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice his prayer. It's nothing about himself. He's not making a name for himself at all. His prayer is to magnify and glorify God. Let everyone know, Lord, that you are God. and You are turning their hearts back. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Wow, what a sight, right? How amazing would that be? You're sitting there looking at the altar, and suddenly fire falls down from heaven and consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. Rocks burn. That's hot fire. It consumed the rocks? I mean, this was not normal. There's no doubt that God did this. It even lift up the water that was in the trench, verse 38. Now imagine the response of the people, verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. So like, they're like, whoa. I mean, they couldn't even stand up anymore. They fall flat on their faces. And they say, the Lord, he is God say it twice the lord he is god there's no doubt at all very powerful scene and then this gets pretty gruesome here so god shows his greatness i'm going to qualify this god shows his greatness he's like okay y'all see i'm god don't ever forget it right don't ever forget it then he shows his judgment <clears throat> elijah said to him, seize the prophets of baal let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's rough. God's holy. He is just. He judges. And he punishes sin. All these prophets of Baal died that day. One prophet of God versus 450 prophets of Baal. God wins. God wins. He always wins. Don't ever forget that. Sometimes we feel like our back's against the wall. We're the only one left. The world is, is, is just falling apart. God wins. God doesn't need great armies to get his work done. Now, you would think after this that Elijah would feel like invincible. Like, you see what my God just did? Yeah. That's awesome. That's right. He's my God. You see what he just did? Ain't nobody better mess with, with me anymore. I'll call down my God on you. You would think he would think he's invincible. But that's, that's not the case. And this is where it gets very interesting. That's not the case at all. In fact, he runs for his life and prays that he would die. Really? Yes. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel's after him. Then he was afraid. Elijah, you just stood up to all the prophets of Baal and you're afraid of Jezebel? Really? Yes, he's afraid. 
he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. So he gets up and he's afraid and he runs for his life. Hey, we do that too. Right? We get afraid. The fear is not from God. So he runs for his life. Look at verse four. He went himself a day's journey into the wilderness, came down and sat under the tree. He asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Lord, it's over. Just take me now. I'm no better than my father's. I'm the last one. Just take me. Take my life, Lord. And then he goes to sleep. He lays down and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, so see God, even in our weakest moments, God knows our hearts. He encourages us. He sends an angel. He sends an angel. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And so Elijah rose and ate and drank, and he went on in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So he's running this super marathon for like 40, 40 days, 40 nights, <clears throat> still running for his life. God has encouraged him, even sent an angel to take care of him. So you would think now even, Elijah might be feeling a little bit better. Now, okay, God, you're in control. Okay, God, you got this. Okay, God, I need to carry on. Okay, God, you know, use me as your humble servant. You know, all these things you might expect him to think and feel at that moment. So he goes, journeys for 40 days, 40 nights. Verse 9, he comes to a cave and he sleeps there. He lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He's still in the same state. It's just me, God. They want to kill me too. I'm the only one left. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. So now God's going to speak back to Elijah. And it's very interesting in the way that God does this, the way he speaks to Elijah. You may have heard this story before. <clears throat> so God says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. That's a strong wind. You ever seen, a, you ever seen wind break rocks? <laughs> really? <laughs> I've never seen wind break rocks. That's some strong wind. And so Elijah is witnessing some amazing supernatural power right before his eyes. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. So there's an earthquake. You ever been somewhere where there's an earthquake? I was on a conference call once with people in California, and there was an earthquake on their side. 
and I'm hearing stuff shake, and they're like, ah, whoa, what's going on? Ah, I'm like, oh my god, what's happening over there? <laughs> that was terrible. That was scary. They're like, dude, we just had like an earthquake here. Stuff shaking, stuff falling, and I'm like, oh, wow, that was crazy. Is everybody okay? And they're like rattled. You know? They're like, well, yeah, that was a short one. So there's this earthquake. And so he's standing, he's watching this earthquake. Like, there's a lot going on here right in front of Elijah. This earthquake happens right in front of him. Right after the wind that breaks the rocks, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some of your translations say a still small voice. Just the sound of a whisper. So after all this great and crazy loud stuff, just whisper. Voice of God speaking to Elijah. Whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> and he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars. Like he's got this track going in his line. He's saying the same thing again. Killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. <clears throat> and then the Lord tells him what to do. Go, Elijah, go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So God's got a plan. He's got a whole thing planned out. Pay attention, Elijah. Listen up. This is what you're going to do. He's not taken aback by all this. Pay attention. Go do this, Elijah. <clears throat> and here's the point. Here's what Paul drew out in Romans chapter 11. What he's trying to tell us now. God's got a plan. He has his people always has a plan and he always has his people verse 18 yet i will leave seven thousand in israel elijah all the knees that have not bowed to fail and every mouth that has not kissed him i got my people elijah matter of fact there's seven thousand of them you may think you're all alone elijah listen up you're not you may think that it's only you left, and I should just go ahead and take you, Elijah, too. You're wrong. I got my peeps. <laughs> I got my people. I got my plan. Now get in with it. And get going with it, Elijah. Be faithful. And so this speaks to us today. You know, even in the worst of times, when it seems like God has given up on his people, and we think that things are so bad that God has given up on the world and he's completely rejecting us and, and the world and that he's, let's just remember, brothers and sisters, God is faithful. He's faithful and he keeps his promises. 
And we see here that God always has a remnant. We saw that starting way back in chapter 9. God has a remnant. A remnant is this small number of his people that he has chosen for himself to remain faithful to him. God always has a remnant. He always keeps his promises. And so in the same way today, God has chosen his people all over the world in seemingly small little groups all by his grace. And, you know, if we're not faithful to God, he'll use someone else to get his plans done. God's plan is going to get done, brothers and sisters. And if we're not faithful to get in on it, hey, he'll go find someone over in South Korea to do it. Or he'll go find someone over in Uganda to do it. Or the Sudan or South Africa or China. You know, we're not like all that in a bag of chips because we're the church in America. He has his people all over the world. And I tell you, you know, you go on a mission trip and you see that and it is beautiful. Everywhere I've gone on mission trips, it's like, wow, here's God's people. And, and they worship and they love Jesus. Hey, and they even sing the songs that I know just in Spanish. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And it's like, wow, God is at work all over the planet, all over this world. And they love Jesus. And they see you and like in the, you know, the broken English, you love Jesus. And there's hugs, and there's love, and there's like, I don't know anything about you, but I love you as a brother, because <laughs> you love Jesus. And it's just beautiful. God always has his remnant, his small little groups of people all over the world. <clears throat> Back to Romans 11, verse 6. Notice this, that God chooses his people all over the world, and he does this by his grace. The remnant is not according to works. Otherwise, the whole principle of grace would be violated. God's gracious choice. And we saw that you know, way back in, in chapter 9. He pardons some. He chooses some. And he's been giving illustration after illustration and, and using text from the Old Testament over and over again to, to bring this point home. It's not according to works. It's not according to being Jewish and keeping the law. It's not according to being Gentile and being a pretty good person. It's not according to any of that. It's God's gracious choice. And he is gracious. And so he uses that illustration of Elijah to encourage us today and let us know that, hey, God's always got a plan. He's always got his people. Don't forget that. It's all done by his choice. And then he quotes Isaiah and David to really drive the point home further. Verse 7. And here, here's his point that he drives home. And this is how it relates back to Israel. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so Paul is drawing on this Jewish tradition that runs like this. When God delays outstanding judgment, 
those who do not use the time of delay to repent. So when God delays his judgment, that's your time to repent. That's the time of mercy. That's the time of grace. That's the time when you cry out to God and say, I'm so sorry, God. I'm a desperate sinner, Lord. I need you. Please save me. You just cry out to him. So he, he takes, he withdraws the judgment. He gives a time of mercy. You know, we see this play out in our families too, right? You know, children, sometimes like you deserve the, the whooping. The dad or mom delays the hand of judgment. <laughs> and that's your opportunity to get on your knees, kids, and say, oh, forgive me, mom. Forgive me, dad. I have sinned against you and the Lord, and I'm so sorry. Take a tip here. I can help you out with this. <laughs> because once that happens, it's like, oh, man, okay. Especially some of us older parents are, like, worn out. Like, okay, oh, no whooping this time. Uh, yeah. Since, you, since you're, you know, repenting, right? You can see that. So God's using this. He's like, this is your time to repent and turn to me. That's the time to, to turn to the Lord. But the ones who don't, oh, and there are many who don't. You know, they interpret it like, oh, God, let us off the hook. Let's go back to having our fun. Let's go back to our idol worship. Let's go back to what we were doing. You know, we got away with it. You know, they were kind of sorry they got caught. Not sorry for what they were doing. Not sorry that they had sinned. Kids, you know that, right? Sometimes you're like, I'm not sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Mom. You know, you're sorry you got caught. <laughs> you're not sorry that you were sinning against, you know, Mom's rules or Dad's rules. And so there's always a group like that. Always a group like that. <clears throat> and you know what happens to that group? They are hardened. And it's not that necessarily God's hardening them. He's just releasing his grace at that point. It's like, and they're hardening their own hearts. We saw the illustration with Pharaoh and everything else in, in chapter 9. You know, our hearts are desperately wicked. You know, who, who can know? And so those who do not repent in that time, they are hardened. So that when their final judgment does come, it is truly seen as just. God's judgment is just. And so in our text, we see God has created a time, not only for the Gentiles to come in, but also for more Jews, like Elijah and Paul, to recognize that the risen Jesus is indeed Israel's Messiah, and to serve him in obedience, in the obedience of faith. And for those who do not come to Jesus, the Jewish scriptures themselves declare God's judgment on those Within Israel, who remains stubborn. That's when he's quoting Isaiah and David, Isaiah 29, verse 10. He says, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. He's repeating these verses, just different ones, over and over again to illustrate the point. David says in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their bend and their and bend their backs forever. They get what they deserve. God has been gracious and merciful. They don't turn to him, they get what they deserve. It's just judgment. 
So as long as ethnic Israel refuses to see the crucified Jesus as Messiah and Lord, their eyes will be darkened and their back bent. That's what these texts are telling us. Unbelieving Israel as a whole, not individual Israelites, but as a whole, is hardened permanently. There are no promises to be made of a reversal of the hardening except in the context of coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus is the way. Trust in him. But this doesn't mean that any particular one cannot be saved and come to faith, just like Paul. We saw that with, you know, Nicodemus. Some of the other Jewish, you know, folks in Jesus' time that came to him when the Pharisees and the others as a whole rejected And the point here is that some have already done this and more will follow in the days to come. It's only when the word of judgment has been fully heard that the word of mercy can be, and grace can sound beautiful. If you don't have the contrast of judgment to compare mercy and grace to, you don't see the full beauty and glory of that mercy and grace. It's in contrast to the judgment when it shows itself most beautiful. And so what is our response to this today? Think about this. What are you going to do with this truth in your own heart? It may apply differently to each one of us based on our faith journey and where we are in our walk with the Lord. God has opened a time of grace for us to believe in him and be saved from our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. God is graciously choosing both Jews and Gentiles in this time of grace. And you are here today and hearing the message of salvation. It's no coincidence. It's not an accident. Some of you kids are here today. You know, you, you came because mom and dad make you. <laughs> That's kind of how it is, what we do. And you may have never trusted in the Lord Jesus personally. You're just here on your parents' faith. So I beg you today, trust in the Lord Jesus. Cry out to him. He will save you. Put your faith in him today. And you'll never be disappointed. He's graciously calling you to himself. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.